Welcome, welcome back to Rise to Liberty podcast. Thank you for joining us today. Today is actually a very special day. Second time having Mr. G. Edward Griffin back on the show. Uh, last time we had some technical difficulties and he's back to make it up to everybody. So thank you so much for coming back. And uh, I'm sure my listeners will appreciate it as well. Well, we'll give it a old college try and uh, see if we can't do better this time. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, you were more than welcome on my platform anytime. Um, so for anyone who doesn't know, um, your, I guess, most well-known uh, contribution has been uh, being the author of the Creature from Jekyll Island. Um, that's where I found you. Um, I've also heard your other book, A World Without Cancer, um, dropped quite a bit as well. Um, do you kind of want to give the unfamiliar audience a just quick little rundown? Well, yes, those are my two more most popular books. The uh, World Without Cancer was the oldest one, and uh, I think it was published in 1974. And it continues to be a, a bestseller, actually, to my amazement. I've updated it a little bit as uh, key figures die off of old age and are replaced by new names, but their positions and their activities remain pretty much the same. And so nothing really needs to be changed in that book except to update the, the names of a few of the players. Whereas the uh, creature from Jekyll Island was a lot more recent, and I think the date on that first issue, uh, first uh, printing was uh, 1964, uh, I think it was, or 69, 69, I believe. Anyway, a long time ago. It's, and um, that's had a lot of updated material because the economy is constantly flowing. And it's not just a change in players, it's a change in the game itself. And uh, so that's had a lot of revisions and updates. And as a matter of fact, I, uh, I'm thinking very seriously about the next new uh, edition. We've had five editions of it. I think some about 60 or 70 printings, but uh, an edition is different because that means there's substantial additional material and revisions. And the next one will probably be to include uh, the digital age, the cryptocurrencies. And now the, everybody's talking about the central bank digital currencies. So I think that's my next uh, sixth edition and the drawing boards. When it'll come out, I don't know, but probably in the next uh, year or something like that. So those are the year right there. Those are the two most popular books. And in both cases, as I alluded to a moment ago, they've been really fantastic bestsellers, which I did not anticipate. <laughs> I, I thought, well, you know, most authors write their books and they, in addition to the one they, they, um, they give to their parents and to their brothers and sisters and uncles and aunts. That's about it. Maybe sell five or six copies. And um, I really wrote that book because I wanted it in the archives. I really felt that our, our system, our culture, our civilization itself, certainly our nation was in the nosedive and that uh, someday it was going to hit the ground and crash and burn. And uh, so I wanted 
I wanted the survivors, if there were any, to, to discover copies, a few copies of this book I'd written about why that happened and so forth. And so I didn't really expect a very big sale on it, but uh, I couldn't believe it. We released the book and uh, within, well, within the second week, we were getting orders from all over the country. And by the third or fourth week, we were getting orders internationally. And I, I called my Pat to the computer that day. I remember, I said, Pat, come here, look at this. We're actually selling these books. <laughs> we couldn't <laughs> believe it. And so uh, now I guess in the creature, the creature book, which is about the Federal Reserve System and international banking in general, um, probably has sold a little over a million copies by now. Wow. Which is absolutely phenomenal. I still don't understand it because <laughs> uh, we never advertised it. We never promoted it. It's all word of mouth. People will write to us and say, we want to order a case of books. The case of books, why? Well, somebody gave me a book and I read it and I liked it so much, I want to give copies away. So people were buying cases of books and it's been pretty much like that ever since. So that in a nutshell is the story of how it uh, has hit the market, which as I say, is a complete surprise to me. And it gives me great hope for the future. Well, First, I got to say, that's the creature from Jekyll Island. That's how I found you. Um, also, word of mouth. I had a close friend of mine give me a copy and said, you need to read this. And it, it was a definite turning point in my life to where there was, you know, before me and then after reading the book, me. And it's a book I've recommended. I myself have given away a few copies. Um, it's, I, I really appreciate uh, the unique storytelling, but also uh, for such a complex and nuanced topic and mingling of really unique and also terrifying individuals. You just have such a way to be able to explain it that it's not overwhelming or overly dry or it, it kept me entertained the entire way through. So. Oh, well, I'm glad to hear that. Thank you for saying that. A lot of people have said it and it amazes me, but I did try honestly to write it. To, there are a lot of other books as you can imagine out there. I mean, I wasn't starting from scratch. I had many books to read and get, they helped me get up to speed real fast from the great work that previous authors had done. But in most cases, the, the books were written from a kind of a technical perspective. You know, like if you were going to become a banker, you'd need to read this book to see how the markets <laughs> work and how the discount rates are and how many members on the board of directors and all the technical things and the discount window and da, 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 which is it's important, vitally important, but it's not very exciting reading. And But when I realized that the Federal Reserve was formed in the very beginning, at a secret meeting, a highly secret meeting that took place on Jekyll Island off the coast of Georgia, which was a playground for multimillionaires, billionaires of the time. Some of the wealthiest bankers were had their so-called cottages there. They owned the island. It was a privately owned island. And that's where they went to spend the winter months to get out of the cold environs of New York during the winter. And they had these beautiful uh, homes summer homes or winter homes i guess and then they built this clubhouse the jekyll island clubhouse which is still standing there and it was a magnificent structure 
and architecture of the time, and that they went there and they actually lied about where they were going and what they were doing. They didn't want anybody to know they went there. And I, I started learning the details of the secrecy of this meeting. And when I realized that there are very few wars of history that were started under conditions of greater secrecy than that, I said, what the heck is going on here? So I quickly realized that what I was reading was not a story about banking and currency and discount rates. I was reading a whodunit. I was reading about a crime. And I decided, okay, if this is a crime, let's deal it as though I'm writing a crime story. Who did it? How did they do it? Where did they bury the body? How did they try and deceive people from discovering the truth about the crime and so forth? So I tried to preserve that subconscious attitude all the way through is tell the story of what was going through their minds as they did all these things and took all these interesting steps that they did. So I'm glad that it seems to have worked out, certainly in your case, and you make me feel really good when you tell me that's how you saw it also. Well, one of my favorite things, um, I like how you start in the middle of the story. <laughs> it just That always stuck with me um, because I, I did have to read it a couple of times for everything to really sink in. But for anyone who doesn't know that the Federal Reserve is not federal, and there are also no reserves. <laughs> uh, it's a privately ran institution. Um, and there's lots of controversy and all kinds of lies and mystique and everything surrounding the people who own it, who started it. Um, it's either way, it's not part of the federal government and they have the explicit permission uh, to basically counterfeit our currency. Um, would you mind explaining uh, exactly how, how much the Federal Reserve um, affects everyone's daily life? I don't think I or any other human being has the, the mental ability to comprehend the answer to that question how many ways and to what depth uh, does the Federal Reserve affect our daily lives? All I could say is uh, in every way and to total extent, because um, we could not survive unless we interacted with each other. And aside from the purely personal interaction between you know, personal friends or family members, and between man and wife and children and father and son and so forth and very close friends, most of our activities are among strangers and uh, we interact with each other in such a way that uh, the value of that interaction is measured indirectly at least in terms of money. Everything has a monetary value almost. The mo they say the most valuable things, you know, like love and affection and, and honor and and respect and all these things are have no monetary value to them. But I can tell you that there are a lot of people who would spend a lot of money to try and get those things that they didn't have them. So um, or, and sometimes they can buy them or at least the appearance of those things. So anyway, money is 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 not to be laughed at or to be dismissed as this. Oh, well, money is the root of all evil and quick, easy statements like that. Um, money is OK. Let's say money is the root of all evil. But then money is also the root of all good, because all money is is a measure of the extent to which 
a person can obtain the services of other people. That's what it is. It's a simple thing. If you have money, you can hire people to do anything. If you have a lot of money, you can hire armies and buildings full of bureaucrats and you can hire okay. politicians and you can hire um, mafiosa types. You can hire intelli in intelligent people. <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> Excuse me for coughing. I hope you can edit that out. You can hire very intelligent people. You can hire college professors. You can hire authors to write books. You can hire people to produce films, moving dramatic films and so forth. In other words, money can be used for good or evil. And unfortunately, evil people do use it for evil purposes. And we remember those very well. And hence, there's the phrase, money is the root of all evil. But all of the good things you can think of are enhanced by money as well. So it's not the money by itself. It's, it's the people, the people that use the money and what they use it for and how they use it. So uh, how does that affect us? It affects us in every way. If, if you can influence, forget about controlling, but if you could just seriously influence how much money another person has, you are affecting their lives in the most profound way possible because you are either expanding or contracting the extent to which they can obtain the services of other people. The services of other people, meaning as, it includes farmers who grow food for you. It means the weaver who makes your clothes. It means the painter who paints your house. It, it means the guy who, who builds your house. It means the, the uh, realtor who sells your house and so forth. And everything you do actually has a monetary value somewhere in the chain. So the degree to which monetary value plays a role in anything you want to do is the degree to which the Federal Reserve System affects your life. And when you think about all the things you want to do, how many things are there that don't cost you anything, either directly or indirectly? Even if, you, if it's free, you've got to have the free time to participate in the event. You have to have saved some money, have something in the bank to carry you over the time to enjoy what you want to do instead of rather working. So everything affects our lives in ways that we don't even think about until we run out of money and then we say, oh my gosh, I can't do anything. So what, one thing I would like to clear up, um, well, it, it's kind of hard for me because I, I read this book <laughs> right out of high school. Um, and so it, it's been a, a while since I was, you know, before I read the book, me. <clears throat> and it's hard for me to uh, remember what being in Pandora's box was like before I was let out. And so what, one thing I've noticed is that a lot of people can and do in many cases, not with only the uh, Federal Reserve uh, topic, but many other topics, uh, just dismiss it as conspiracy theory. Um, and I would like to say that conspiracy actually is a, a word for a reason and it has a meaning. Uh, the definition, uh, conspiracy is a noun. It's a secret plan by a group to do something unlawful or harmful. And that happens all the time. There's a legal definition for it. Uh, you can be charged with conspiracy to commit a crime. So to dismiss 
something, a story or whatever, just as a crazy conspiracy theory is incredibly ignorant. Um, and I, I can't think of a better way to describe a whodunit other than a conspiracy. Mm -hmm. Well, conspiracy is a very a challenging word, as you say. It's used primarily <clears throat> to imply something it imply that the way it's used today like conspiracy theory you put those two words together which means it's not a conspiracy it's somebody thinking it's a conspiracy when it's not and the implication that goes with that is that the person who believes it's a conspiracy is stupid or crazy and so that's why they use the word and i have never seen the documentation to prove it but i've heard from some very respectable sources that the whole concept of conspiracy theory was actually de devised by the CIA some years ago to deliberately use to discredit or uh, limit the influence of those who are trying to expose the real conspiracy. So, you know, and then also there's another interesting fact that people forget, and that is this, that anyone who scoffs at the idea of conspiracy, I kind of feel sorry for them because that means they probably never read a history book. I think conspiracy, yeah, I would be safe to say that conspiracy is the most prevalent and the most powerful, the most significant element of every event of significance in history. All wars are launched by a conspiracy of some kind. I mean, the person's going to attack someone else doesn't talk about it. They plan against it. But of course, that may not be considered a conspiracy. Uh, because of the definition, you have to choose your definition. But generally, the definition of a conspiracy is is an act that is planned by two or more people. And the purpose of the act is considered uh, to be either uh, illegal or unethical. That's most dictionaries would r grind down to that kind of a concept. It's got to have two or more people. And it's got the the purpose of the act is supposed to, it has to be illegal or unethical. Well, take a look at the Federal Reserve System. Now let's just, let's get this brass tacks. Was, oh, 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 I forgot the third part. Done in secrecy. Two or more people in secret plan to do something that is uh, illegal or um, unethical. Well, the Federal Reserve System, was it planned and carried out by more than two people or more than one person? Absolutely, okay, there's one. Was it done in secrecy? Amen, brother. Was it ever? That was the thing that caught my attention when you go down and look at the secrecy surrounding the formation and even the continuation of the Federal Reserve is astronomical. So there's, you know, when there's secrecy involved, there's something to hide. Otherwise, you wouldn't go to the trouble of, of having secrecy. And that, but the third thing is where it gets interesting is what they were trying to do. Is it illegal or unethical? Well, it's certainly not illegal because these are the guys that passed the laws. And that was why they were passing the Federal Reserve Act is to make this thing that they were planning to do legal. Now, if they hadn't passed the law, they could have done the same thing anyway, but now it would have been illegal. So they had to pass the Federal Reserve Act to make this legal. So now that took care of legal, but how about ethical? Well, now that depends on your point of view. As far as the bankers and the politicians, who created this thing are concerned, they considered it to be very ethical because they felt that the people were too damn stupid to know how to conduct their own lives, how to handle their own money, how to handle politics. 
They wanted to give them the feeling that they were in charge of their own political destiny, but uh, give them the appearance of it without the reality of it. And they knew that they could do that in certainly one of the most important ways is to control their activities by controlling their money supply and the flow of money. So they felt that that was a great act of statesmanship to take control away from the average person and put it into their hands because they were much wiser and much, they would produce a system that was much more efficient, much more fair, get rid of wars, get rid of famine, get rid of poverty and all these good things. So therefore it's okay to lie, to cheat, to steal and to, uh, and hide everything in secrecy. It's okay because the end justifies the means. It was not unethical at all. So in their minds, they're honestly, honestly and correctly saying it was not a conspiracy. But now what about in the minds of those who have to suffer under this system that they have imposed upon us? I think most of us, if they understood as you and I do, what they really do with that power, we would consider it to be highly unethical. We probably, have a vocabulary a little stronger than that, that we would use to describe it, but we can't use those words in public company. So uh, yeah, so it's a conspiracy for most people if they understood it, but not for those who are doing it themselves. So once you understand that, and once you understand that history is loaded with conspiracy after conspiracy, uh, even the American Revolution had to be started as a conspiracy, and they had to hide their plans from the British crown, Otherwise, the Brits would have come in before they did and put a stop to it. So anyway, that's it's once you understand the real meaning of these words, they, they lose their power. It used to bother me when people called me a conspiracy theorist. I said, I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I'm a conspir- conspiracy historist. I read history about conspiracy. <laughs> but they're not listening to me. I'm just speaking to myself. So I finally le- learned to just you know, enjoy it. Yeah, I'm, I guess I'm a conspiracy theorist, as you say. Let's let's see why. Let's talk about why I'm that way. And that works a lot better. I always just uh, inform people that I can just recognize patterns very well. <laughs> that's, that's, all, that's my only talent. Um, so one thing I did want to know, it, it seems as though if if you are familiar with history that you can go back and there has always been a, a disdain for money changers, you know, the bankers, uh, as far back as, uh, the, the one and only time Jesus got, uh, angry and used violence was to cast out the bankers out of a temple, uh, all the way back to ancient Rome. Um, there's been a long disdain for what, our founding fathers would call the money changers. And so what, what were these, what, what were these people able to change so effectively that they just reversed a few thousand years of, uh, of public opinion? Well, let me think about that just for a second. I, th- I can think of many things that fall into that category, but you said, what was the, the thing, the thing? I suppose, I, if I had to make a first draft on that answer, I would have to have two things. One is they, they developed control over the means of communication, the transmission of ideas, news, media primarily, and education. So they could change a person's perspective of what's going on, simply by the use of vocabulary. Instead of 
causing them, calling them money changers. They'll call them financiers. And instead of money grubbers, they'll call them uh, benefactors and so forth. They can you do a lot just with, with language. And they, perf- they have been perfecting that and still perfect it today uh, using language as a weapon. And uh, the other thing is that they were able to develop technology in which the, the act of money changing was less visible back in the early days. I mean, money was very simple. It was something that you carried around or had stored someplace that somebody else wanted and you could swap it out in, in, you know, like barter. And uh, that's how coins started, little pieces of metal that could be melted down and the metal could be used for a lot of valuable things, even if it weren't used for money, which is what made it good as money because it had other uses as well. And so uh, that system is long gone now. Nobody understands how money is created today. It took me a long time to figure it out, even reading their direct uh, books and their manuals and their uh, attending some of their courses where they explain it. And it seemed like the more they explained it, the more confusing it was. And I found out later that's exactly what they were trying to do. And um, so um, I think they put those two things together is what is why they're more successful today and control how people react to their profession and then conceal the fact that they are money changers in the sense. Well, what is a money changer? Well, in the, in those days, it simply was swapping one type of money for another to change it from one to the other. You can go to the airport today and you can find money changers all over the place. And they're doing basically the same thing. You want to change dollars for yen or something like that. Those are money changers. And um, in that day, there was no, no record you could look up on your smartphone and say, well, what's the exchange rate around the world, or at least in the United States at this moment for this amount of money? You, you couldn't compare it with anything. It's whatever the money changers said. Well, I'll give you this for that. And you said, you're stealing me blind, you know? Uh, too bad. You want it or don't you, you know? And so people resented that kind of power that the money changers had. They were, they were giving people value far less than what it really was. If somebody had a real, a real gold coin, it was understood to be worth something and uh, they needed to uh, break it down into two smaller units so they could buy something of less value than a whole gold coin because whoever they wanted to buy didn't have the change so you had to break the money down why they had to take whatever was available they couldn't say well look this guy down at american airlines said united airlines they have a different rate for the same exchange you couldn't do that you took what you had so there's a lot of resentment and um people knew that they were being robbed right in front of their eyes and couldn't do anything about it, which is why the early banking uh, bankers, I should say, really had such a bad reputation because they were playing that game and it's pretty obvious. So now today though, all of that is hidden from view. It's all done by computer. They've got, they've got different words to conceal it. The, the technology is great. They call it, um, oh, I have all kinds of words for inflation, you know, uh, they, uh, they talk about uh, monetizing the debt. Well, what is monetizing the debt? What does that mean? Now you got to read a book about that, and then you're not quite sure. And uh, so anyway, it gets very complicated to the average person. And I think that's basically the answer. So they make it unnecessarily complicated to exactly, warn, unnecessarily warn people off. And that was why I wrote the book, is to get the, uh, to unscramble all that. And to get that one thread un- unwound from all the other threads and stretch it out straight, say, oh, there's just one thread. They're cheating me. It's called fraud. <laughs> I see it. In fact, I, I had fun one day. I had to give a speech on the Federal Reserve. And uh, they said, well, Mr. Griffin, you have to, you don't have a lot of time 
can you give us a short version of the speech? Well, I'm used to giving 90 minutes uh, or 120 minute speeches on Federal Reserve. 90 so minutes said, well, is the short version. <laughs> yeah, it is a short version. Yeah. Uh, so um, they asked me to shorten it. I said, well, how, how short? Well, how about five minutes? And I thought I had to laugh because I said, yeah, I can do that. I can do it in less than five minutes because I had learned when I was on in the early days on the speaking tour, quite often somebody would say, well, there'll be a camera crew here to, uh, to, to uh, participate and see what you had to say about the Federal Reserve. And I'm thinking, oh, great, they're going to film me, you know, broadcast it on lo local television. Well, that was not even half true. It was about one-tenth true. They were coming with their camera crew, but they didn't want to film the whole thing. They wanted me to give them a soundbite. And I said, well, how much time do you have for this interview? Oh, we, we want about a, a one-minute statement from you or a two-minute statement like that. Can you do it? And if I couldn't do it, then of course, they would pack up and go home. So I learned how to condense, condense, condense. And so I said, I'm going to give you my um, three-word summary for the Federal Reserve System. Are you ready? Okay. It's a scam. Any questions? You know, that was my speech. <laughs> you can always condense if you wish. You leave out a few details along the way. But uh, if you understand from the beginning, which is hard to do, that it's a scam, it's a lot easier to figure out. If you start off as I did thinking, well, this must work somehow. It must make sense or they wouldn't do it. How does it work? I wanted to figure out how the gogs, the cogs worked and the pulleys and the, all the all that, they're, they're not intended to work. They're intended to appear to work. And they have all little, little side levers and, and dump buckets that they can adjust to make it appear to work when in fact, it's just a scam from top to bottom. Once you understand that, the whole thing gets really simple. So what, one thing I'm kind of curious about, it, it seems as though these incredibly rich uh, tycoons, uh, especially the Rothschilds, um, <clears throat> who at the time nobody knew the extent of their wealth. Uh, I'm not sure if anyone does now, but it, it seems as though that these would be pro-capitalist people, yet they created, promote, and live through the fifth uh, plank of the Communist Manifesto of the centralizing credit, which is what they've done to all of us is centralize credit and debt. I'm sorry, all my phones are going off here. I forgot to turn them off. No I'll, have to, uh, I'll just uh, turn them off here. Somebody calling me from New York. How about that? Oh, the Federal Reserve probably is calling me. <laughs> <laughs> I'll get that. Thing. Okay, there you go. Whoop, that didn't go off. Why not? I'm sorry. Oh, you were totally fine. Oh, I, oh, I got a signal to get myself on here. All right, there it's going off now. Sorry about that. So anyway, um, where were we? We were talking about uh, how come these big fat capitalists are promoting communism, basically. Yeah. First thing, first thing is to understand they're not capitalists. It's a mistake many people have to think that if somebody's rich, that makes them a capitalist. Being a capitalist has nothing to do with how much money you have. Being a communist makes nothing to, has nothing to do with how little money you have. Some of the richest people in the world are communists, socialists, and uh, 
tyrants of all kinds. They have no no particular ism except me, me. I'm in charge. I'm I'm a dictator. Dictators are wealthiest people in the world because they control everything. And this is easier to understand, easier to understand if you re realize what the word ownership means. Ownership does not mean that you have eternal control over something, but it does mean that you have authority to use it exclusively, if you wish. That's what that's what ownership means. It doesn't mean a piece of paper that says you have a deed on your house. The deed is only of value to it because it says you have, in our legal system at least, you have the legal right to access this property exclusively, if you wish. So ownership means control. So the richest people in the world are those who control, not necessarily own on a piece of paper. And these capitalists that you, you're calling them capitalists do not believe in capitalism. Capitalism is defined as the private ownership of goods and of, of uh, means of production and wealth. So all it is, private ownership of things. It doesn't mean rich, it just means it's private. And so I was, uh, all my life, I mean, I've been a capitalist. I'm not very rich. I mean, I'm not like these people. You think, well, they're rich, they're capitalists, and I'm not rich, so I'm not a capitalist. That's wrong thinking. So the answer to this uh, riddle is that these people are not capitalists at all. And it makes me mad when I hear people talk about the bankers today and the Federal Reserve, and they call them crony capitalists. They're crony socialists. Come on, let's call them what they are. <laughs> they're not capitalists at all. We haven't had capitalism, private ownership without control of the government, of, of means of production and goods and services. It doesn't, we haven't had that since World War I, for God's sake. We, have, we don't have capitalism in America today. We have socialism, let's call it what it is, and socialism is failing, but people are out in the streets and say, capitalism is failing, see? No, no, capitalism was gone long ago. It's socialism that's failing. And so they want us to have more socialism so we can fail some more. So uh, once you understand what the word capitalism really means, then all this gets cleared up. So I, I have always uh, liked ask, asking the question, um, you know, if somebody says you know, capitalism is failing, um, prove to me how we are a capitalist system. Um, the, the very fact that we have a centralized currency in the first place <laughs> that's yeah. not capitalist. That's a good start right there. Yeah. The government fixes how much we have to pay each other salary. I mean, there's the price of services. They, yeah. they, they, will, they can fix any prices they wish or influence so strongly that uh, it's the same as fixing the prices. They, can, uh, they may not be able to, uh, at the present time, they cannot uh, take away your property as uh, directly by saying we're going to confiscate it but they can keep raising your taxes until you can't afford to pay the taxes. And now we'll take it because you didn't pay your taxes. That's how they're doing it. They're confiscating property now because people can no longer afford to pay the, the mortgages or the taxes and so forth. So the government comes in and says, well, don't worry. We are your friends. We will, we will buy your property and then we'll let you live in it free as long as you do exactly what we tell you to do. Death by a thousand cuts. Yeah, thousand cuts. Yeah, yeah that's. Uh, I, I had always compared uh, the the current system that we have is much closer to economic fascism, 
Uh, I I see very little difference between corporation and government. Oh, absolutely. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I wouldn't say very little difference. I would say it's it. <laughs> what is fascism? Just fascism the building a, of. It's, it's a blending of private and corporate. All this business about public private partnerships. Everything. Oh, that sounds so good. That's fascism, folks. That's public communist language for sure. It's is fascism. <laughs> That's what Mussolini had or was trying to put install in Italy. And right now it's uh, in the United States and most of the world. We think that the government is controlling the, the businesses, you know. Wake up, everybody. It's the businesses <laughs> that are controlling the government, especially the banking business, because they control the money. They have endless resources of money at their disposal, and they control the degree to which you can use money as well. And with that power, they can buy politicians easily all day long, dime a dozen. And the politicians will say, well, we're the government, but they're no, they're not. They're working for the, <laughs> the people that give them the money. So that's the reality of our day. One thing I've always been curious about is if they can just print or create all of this fiat currency, why do we pay taxes? Well, they've explained that themselves. Well, not they, but there have been some a few essays written by members of the Federal Reserve on that topic. And uh, I'm having trouble now recalling the chap's name wrote something right after World War II about that. And I think the title of his essay, we wrote it in the banking for to be published in a banking journal of some kind. I have it in my book, by the way, World Without Cancer. Uh, I mean, <laughs> the creature from Jekyll Island, excuse me. And uh, he said, uh, we no longer need, um, we no longer need taxes because we can create all the money we wish through the mechanism of debt. We don't have to collect a dime ever from anybody anymore, but we will do it nevertheless because it's a means of controlling people. It's a means of determining who succeeds and who struggles to succeed. We'll make it easy for some, our friends, and we'll make it very difficult for others who are not our friends. And so it's a means of, of public control. That's why we will always have taxes. Boy, he spelled it right out. That's it. That's incredibly honest. <laughs> yeah, incredibly honest. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's incredible. I'm I'm not surprised that somebody at that level would admit something like that. It, they seem to do it all the time, and people yeah. just don't. Well, they're they're quite they're quite adequately uh, convinced that there aren't enough people that care to read the stuff that they write. Or if they read it, they don't know what they're reading. They don't understand the basis of money to start off with. So how would they really understand the significance of somebody saying, we can create all the money we want? They don't think that's possible. It's impossible. How can you create all the money you want? It's impossible. This guy's nuts. That's because they don't know how the system works. Well, it's not really money. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. it is. And according to one definition, the dictionary defines money as a medium of exchange, that's all. Now, if you want to say it's good money versus bad money or fiat money versus- That's uh, true. Now, you, now you're in different discussion, but money technically is any medium of exchange. Any, any mutually agreed upon. Mutually agreed. Well, not even that. How many people would accept dollars, US dollars, if they could accept uh, something else that was backed by gold? But they accept dollars because they have no choice. There's a, uh, there's a law requiring them to, a legal tender law. 
So not any money they want, any money they're allowed to want or allowed to have <laughs> is the way the system works. That, that they're told to exact. They're told to want, yeah. Yeah. Um, it's kind of interesting. I've seen more and more states actually uh, allowing different types of currency. It's specifically in my state, uh, the, the state of Utah, we passed a uh, a, a gold uh, a legal gold tender act, I believe is what it was called, but we can't accept uh, bullion for or as legal tender uh, based in the state. Um, of course, there was a bunch of other things that year that they passed that, you know, um, expanded what's known as the, the fourth industrial revolution, or in my opinion, what's realistically the fourth Reich. Um, but so they're, they were giving us, uh, a, a little bit of, uh, Ooh, look, we expanded your Liberty and then we're going to enslave you over here while you're not looking. Um, but the good thing is, is I can buy gold backs. So, you know, it's at least fun. Well, I think it's a step in the right direction and your question is well taken. How sincere is it? Is it, is it part of a long range plan or is it just a short range plan to win your confidence so they can betray you later on? And that, that's a fair question to ask in the real world today because that kind of a ploy is used all the time. But there are more states are doing that. And I'm inclined to think it's because of a, a rising pressure from the public, largely due to uh, not only my book, but to uh, podcasts such as yours and and articles being written and publications are being distributed now outside of mainstream, it's filtering out, it's getting to large numbers of people. And I think the political demand is increasing for that. And the politicians, no matter how vulnerable they may be, they do listen to, to uh, public opinion very closely. Now they may not, um, may not abide by it, or they will appear to abide by it. Most of them will try to do that. They'll, they'll come on and say, yeah, that's right. We got to stick to the constitution or we got to get, we got to get the corruption out of the federal reserve system and they can give great speeches, but they will never do anything about it. So all they care about is to say the right thing and be perceived as a champion of uh, sound money and good government. So it's, it's fair enough to ask questions and say, is this guy for real or this gal for real, or is it just political rhetoric? One, one thing I would be interested to hear your opinion about, um, seeing all kinds of different iterations, uh, all, all kinds of things to come and go throughout your life. Is that possible to have a fair and just government that, uh, a applies the law equally? The answer in my mind is a, a yes and a no. Now I hate those kinds of answers, but <laughs> let me explain. <laughs> it's, a, uh, it's a yes or a no, depending on how you define the word government. That word needs to be defined. I don't like that word. I try not to use it when I'm talking about this thing that most people call government. I like to use the word the state. And the reason I have that, that aversion to the word government is because what is the self-evident purpose of a government? It's to govern. That's the word tells you right there. How many people do you know want to be governed? 
I can't think of anybody. I don't want to be governed. What do I want the state to do for me? Well, I want the state to protect me against foreign invaders, against criminals. I want them to protect me against cheats. I want to the, the, make the system, make everybody honor a contract, a con, you know, agreement to do this. You got I, that, I want the state to protect me, not to govern me. And that's all I want. And that makes a lot of sense because if you believe as most people do when you ask them to define what is the ideal form of government, if they have any opinion at all, it'll be something like, well, to represent the will of the people or the, 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 to exercise the power to, that they get from the people. They, they expect the government to receive its power with the consent of the governed, I think is how it's usually expressed. Well, if that's true, and I think most people would agree that that's a sensible arrangement, then we have to ask the obvious question, well, what, what do the people have the power to do? If we're gonna give that power to the government or the, the state, we have to know what it is that we ourselves have. So now we have to define another word, which is the, the rule of law. Well, law is simply the, the legalized use of force. Everybody agrees that in this one case, in this law, you can use force against other human beings, even lethal force if necessary. All right, if that's the purpose of the law, and we are going to, as individuals, grant that to the, our representatives to represent us, we have to have the power to use lethal force. And we do indeed, but now we have to ask the question, for what purpose? What are we entitled? Most people would agree that we are entitled to use, to kill somebody in other words, or to beat them over the head, to break their bones, hit them hard. For what purpose? And the answer is very clear. It's for defense. The defense of our lives and our liberty. That's it. Well, property comes in there because without property, you cannot defend your life or your liberty. That's why it's on the list. But the only reason property is there is because it's essential for the defense of life and liberty. If you cannot have weapons and you cannot have food and you cannot have shelter, you, you can't defend yourself against anything, you know? So that's why property is there. But the real essence of the argument is it's the defense of life and liberty. And therefore that is the only purpose that we can delegate to the state to use lethal force for. Now, with that in view, what is the function of the state? To protect our lives and our property, period. Close the doors. Everything else is off limits because this has no source unless it just says, well, we are the state and we can do it. Well, that's, that's the way the system works now. We're the state, so we can do it. We won the election. We As told you so. Difference. Yeah. They think because they won the election, now they can do anything they want. And that uh, the people that voted for them didn't have the, the power to delegate to the, uh, those who won the election. So that's my long-winded answer to your question. And that is the, the problem is starts off with the word government. What should the proper function of the government be? First of all, we stop calling it government and call it what we think it should be. My, my nomination for the word to use is to call it a protectorate. We, should, we have to have a state. It's gonna happen one way or the other. That's part of our instinct. Uh, we're, we're mammals. Mammals always travel in 
flocks or herds or something. And we, we stick together for mutual protection as part of our natural uh, environmental instincts. So we're always going to have what appears to be a state, a grouping of people for, for what? For self-defense against predators, usually. And there you have it right there. So we're going to have a state. So now let's call it what it really should be as a protectorate. And we can delegate authority all we want to quite legitimately do so to allow that state to use force to protect our lives and our liberty. But that's it, folks. They cannot tell us what to think, what school we have to go to, what language we have to use. It doesn't, we can't put people in prison for opening their store on Sunday. We can't. We can't find somebody because they hurt somebody else's feeling. We can't force someone <laughs> to pay uh, a certain amount for their services. 99% of the laws that are on the books today violate this fundamental principle that I'm talking about. And that is the reason the whole world is moving into tyranny is because people think it's the right thing to do. They vote for it. They like the idea of giving government power to do all of these things, which they think would be good. And they might be. But the process of allowing the state to use lethal force, if necessary, to bring them about puts too much power in the hands of the administrators of the system and always corrupts them. And that's why all governments, if you use that word, eventually degenerate into criminal syndicates. I... I don't see the difference between the two. Um, there's none. There's none. That's why they it evolves because they it can. You give yeah. people you give people access to money and power, huge amounts of money and huge amounts of power. What's it going to do to them? Going to corrupt them. Yeah. And they'll use that power for an unintended purpose. And we're on that slippery slope until they have total power, and we have zero. And usually ends with uh, them determining who is worthy or not to uh, to exist, which has mm -hmm. led to, you know, the death of hundreds of millions. Yeah. Every time. <laughs> every time. Every time. Yeah. So it's clear. You could write a book about that. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe I will. <laughs> <laughs> so it's it's really having the 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 right to revolt the right to abolish said system once it does not represent uh the needs or wants of the the governed being supposedly well, represented i would uh, not to disagree with you uh, jacob but i i would use a little different vocabulary no one has the right to revolt, I mean, a right, I mean, a right is something you you just do. You who, who gives you the right to revolt? I mean, you have the right to defend yourself, let's put it that way. And if that means revolt, then that's what it means. But you're not, it's not a right to revolt, it's a right to defend your life and your liberty. That's what it really is. And there's no question about that. So, so that, that, that's need... a matter of defensive versus offensive. It's exactly. Everything boils down to that. Now, it's true. If you follow that argument all the way to the end, you come to some gray areas. Some persons, some people might have a different view of what is defensive and what is not. Where, where do you draw the line? And I admit that there will always be some gray areas. And that's what we have courts for. 
We lay down the principles as clearly as we can. We write them into a constitution and say, explain them as clearly as we can. They become the law. And then we establish courts to interpret individual cases against those principles. You, you can't avoid having some gray areas, but uh, courts, that's what there should be for. And if they're honest courts, they will do a good job of it. Too bad they're not private courts and they are currently public courts. Well, private courts wouldn't make any difference. They could be corrupted too. Give them the same power. Who cares whether they're private or public? Give them the power, give them the money. I mean, look at BlackRock and look at uh, some of these uh, private armies that are out there. The CIA hires them to do the dirty work. They're private organization, private armies. That doesn't make any difference. Give them the power and give them the money. you got the same problem. So is, isn't that interesting? There's, there is a subculture of, of people who have the mentality of just leave me alone, you know, and <laughs> these people won't leave you alone. No, they want That's what not you have. They, they're jealous or they think that they're social engineers and can make a better society by taking from you and giving to somebody else who they have compassion for at a higher level than for you. They don't care about you. They care about somebody else or they pretend to. That's often the case too. So once you go over that line to take from one person and give to another, for social justice or whatever argument you want to make. You've set in motion the very thing we're talking about. It's corruption. That's where it goes. That's such an odd thought to me is, uh, let, let me take from here, put over here, because it's more better, or it's, it's more just. It, that doesn't make sense to me. Mm -hmm. And I, I can't understand that type of mentality um, if somebody needs something and they ask, I mean, that, I guess that's one thing, but to forcefully take. Well, that's the whole idea. Yeah. Voluntary action versus compulsory action is one of the distinctions between collectivism on the one hand and individualism on the other. They both can be in pursuit of the same, uh, good deed like take the Good Samaritan, for example, the story of the Good Samaritan. Everybody knows the story. There's, this guy's been beat up on the road and uh, the thieves have taken everything he has. He's left there wounded, probably he's gonna die. And the Samaritan comes along and he takes pity upon him and, and takes him to the nearest inn and pays for his room and board for a few days and, and it's, you know, helps him get better. And the reason that's particularly interesting is because the Samaritans of the time were considered to be the ruffians. To be a good Samaritan was a, a double whammy because the Samaritans are all rough guys. They don't do things like that. They're more like the guys that rob you. So this was a good Samaritan and that's what made the story so interesting. Well, now what if the Samaritan, instead of digging into his own pocket and paying for the room at the end for this guy and helping him, what if he drew his sword and here comes somebody down the pathway, down the road, and he points the sword at their throat, says, give me your money. I'm going to use it to take this poor chap and get him a room and so forth. And if you don't give it to me, I'm going to kill you. Now, all of a sudden, the story changes. Who is, who is the real criminal here? And is the guy with the sword claiming to have a good, a good purpose? Is he better off than the original thief who maybe stole the money because he had a good purpose? Maybe he had to feed his family who were starving? 
Does that make it okay? You know, you get into those gray areas as I was talking about. But uh, the idea that you're using compulsion instead of free will is a big difference in all of these matters. And uh, so uh, that, you know, I, I used to study communism quite deeply when I was first becoming aware of this. I went to the communist bookstore in Los Angeles and read all their books. And I realized that some of their slogans are really good, you know, from each according to his ability to each according to his need. Well, what's wrong with that? That's a great idea. It sounds like the core of Christian charity to me. So naturally, I can see why people fall for slogans like that. Another communist slogan, fight against war and, and um, racism, you know, put an end to poverty and uh, exploitation. Well, what's wrong with that? Well, in all of these cases, they don't talk about how we're going to do it, simply what we're going to do. Well, in the case of the Good Samaritan, he used his own resources. But these collectivists don't believe in using their resources. They want to use your resources and mine. And that's how they get away with being appear, appearing to be good guys because of the end goal. But nobody looks at the fact that they're going to steal from everybody else or threaten their lives or their freedom if they don't participate in the plan that they have in mind. So once you understand the full picture, it's a little easier to see through the propaganda. But you know, when you're in school and you're a young person, you know, you're not looking at the big picture, you're just looking at the, the focus of that little point, help the Samaritan on the road, you know, help this person who's hungry, give him some food, even if you have to take food away from somebody else that needs it too for his family. Uh, don't worry, we're just looking at this one guy here. We're gonna worry about him today. It's an interesting journey. That, to get your head around all of these subtleties. And I'm telling you, the people of the world had better start doing that pretty soon because we, as a human race, we've been falling for this, uh, this, these frauds and this propaganda all too often and far too, too long. It's time to come out of our trance. So, but I, that's kind of a perfect transition. I wanted to ask you about uh, what you had mentioned earlier with the uh, central banking digital currencies, which seems like the natural progression for this system to head. Um, it, I've seen uh, UN documents discussing tying a digital ID to someone's bank account and stealing or installing uh, some sort of uh, value system like the social credit system. Um, I've seen all kinds of theories and obviously these things are coming. Is there, is there actually any, uh, going to be any meaningful uh, attempt at rejecting this in your opinion? Yes, but not by the people who are presently in charge. It's got to come from us and we better get on with it. I'm always, when this issue or similar issues come up, I'm impressed by the documentary film, which we put up on our, our website along with many others called uh, a Red Pill University. We have a collection of really thought provoking documentaries and other lectures on these various topics that we're covering here. And this was the life story of George Orwell. And um, he wrote Animal Farm and uh, 1984, some very profound political uh, novels. And um, 
The story pre presented his life very well, the documentary produced by the BBC. And in the end, of course, we history know we history know tells us that he died of tuberculosis. So that's they portrayed that at the end of this biography of his life. And he's lying on his deathbed, literally, and he's being interviewed by a young woman who, of course, she's an actress. It's all being dramatized, but she is supposedly a BBC news reporter. And she's at the foot of the bed in his in his room, and he's lying in the bed, propped up, gasping for air, having trouble breathing. And um, she said, Mr. Orwell, this book you have written is, is very disturbing. I said, it, it doesn't bode well for the future of mankind. She said, is there anything that you can tell people of what to do about this? And the actor, whose name I don't remember, was did a brilliant job of, he even looked like the pictures of George Orwell. He gasped for air and he looked into the space and he said, yes, yes, I can. And he looked at her and he said, it is, don't let it happen. And that hit me like a ton of bricks. Nobody wants to believe that something is either irreversible or so close to it as to be practically the same, because that's a very hard stop. He is saying if once it happens, it may never get unhappened because there'd be so much power in the hands of so foully corrupted people that the average population would have absolutely no power at all of breaking free from the grips. And this is what this, the central bank, central currencies are all about. If uh, earlier we talked about how money can influence your lives, it totally influences your lives at every level. And if the money that you're allowed to use is not yours, but you're allowed to have only what they give you based upon your cooperation and your willingness to behave according to their rules, then people like you and me are dead because we won't be able to eat. We couldn't even sit on the sidewalk begging for a coin with a cup because there'd be no coins. Everybody else would be without money as well. They couldn't put a, a dime or a quarter in our cup because they have to rely on the same digital currencies, which is controlled by the same people who put me on the street. And they would know if they even talked talk to me, they might wind up on the street too. And that's the kind of utopian world we're looking at. If we don't stop this, we must focus not on what you can do to come back from it, but how to stop it while we can. And the window on that option is gradually closing. So we've got to get really serious about it now. What, what is something practical that if, if somebody's just barely hearing about this for the first time, what's some easy steps to get them in the right direction? Well, other than buying your book. <laughs> I think, I think if they're interested in learning more, that's the first step. If they're not interested in learning more, there's nothing you can do. They want to run. In fact, we were, I had a friend over for uh, lunch today and we were talking about some of her, her friends and, um, and she said they want, every time she starts to talk about these things, this friend of hers in particular puts her fingers in her ears and says, I don't want to hear about it. I don't want to hear about it. 
And many people do that without actually putting their fingers in their ears, but mentally they close down because they just don't want to hear about it. And um, if the question is, what can we do about those people? I think my answer is say goodbye because there's nothing you can do about those people. Now, if they, for some reason they stumble across something, maybe, maybe a, a video that you produce, maybe a book or a pamphlet that I produce, they stumble across something that someone else produces that's a, gee, that got through to me. I heard it. I heard it. I didn't want to hear it, but I heard it. And it makes them curious that they want to know more. Maybe they're not ready to jump on the wagon yet and all that, but they just want to know more. And that's what we hope will happen. Then there's a lot we can do. We can continue, first of all, doing exactly what we're doing now, flooding out as much as we can, information, opinion, facts as well, documentation, um, personal testimonies, um, everything we can, facts especially, history. Oh my gosh, history is such a rich source of argument for what we're talking about. History teaches everything, which is why they don't want us to read history, it's why they take it out of the schools. They want us to learn how to how to be good social creatures and how to get along rather than know anything about our heritage or any of the mistakes that were made in ancient history. They don't, they don't want us to know about those things. So we have to make all the same mistakes again ourselves. So once the person is curious and wants to know more, then we're now we're, we're king because that's our business. Get that information out. Don't sleep at night. Don't take time to eat. You know, just, just get this work out. Of course I'm exaggerating, but it seems like that sometimes. Uh, Let's just get this stuff out and, and not worry about whether it's the best thing we ever did or whether it's, it's good enough. Get it out and then go to something else and get that out and flood the world with this information. And that will, if anything, that will bring it to pass. Now, how? I don't really know. But I do know that what we're cr trying to create will probably play a role in it. I want people to go to one of our websites, which is called redpilluniversity.org, and take a look at what we have there. One of the goals, two of the major goals, but one of them is that we provide a, a, an archive, mostly in video, of the issues like we're discussing here today. A person can spend weeks, if not months, just looking at videos. Don't do that. <laughs> we got, time is too valuable. But uh, scroll around, search around, browse around, find topics that interest you, and you'll come quickly to a point where you say, I get it. We got to do something. We got to break the grip of this cabal. These people are in charge. And if we don't stop them soon, it's not going to happen. So then you don't need to watch any more videos except the ones that capture your attention. And the next step is what are we going to do about it? Well, that's the next step for Redfield University is to create what we call campuses in every local community, not just in the United States, although that's where we start, uh, but around the world campuses is a little misleading we just use that word because it it sounds good with the university but um yeah th thank you for bringing up the website yeah that's our red pill university home page yep. and, and scroll... it is I, I made sure to include it in the episode description right. Great. Uh, thank so you. it's easy for everyone to get yeah well after you after you get your brain full of the information that we need the next step is to join a campus and that means You'll be part of a group of people in your local community. You'll work together, not on the internet. You can go on the internet, but you can't build a movement on the internet. You've got to be face to face. You've got to, to make 
friends with people. You have to know who they are. You're, wait, with you're telling me that my Twitter posts are not changing the world? world no, <laughs> I'm saying that's a start. Oh. But if you, if you want to turn this thing around, like uh, Orwell says, don't let it happen. You have to, it's more than just knowing about it. You've got to get out there now where it's happening, which is in the city councils and the county uh, board of supervisors meetings. You've got to make sure the sheriff is on board. You've got to be active politically in your local communities. And for that, you're going to need a nucleus of about maybe 30, 40 people. With 30 or 40 people, you can become very influential and powerful in your local politics. I've seen it happen. People working together can outperform uh, 10 times their number uh, who are not working together. Just all well-intentioned and motivated people. But until you start working together, uh, it, you don't have the power that you need to change the political structure in your community. So just start with that. I won't go beyond it. There's a, quite a few. Uh, there are quite a few other steps, but those two steps will get you on the road. So go to Red Pill University, splash around until you say, okay, I got the picture. This is a universal problem, and now I want to do something about it. Then sign up for a campus or help us form one in your community, and let's have some fun. And we will not let it happen. I couldn't have said anything better. Um, I, for myself, have been focusing locally. That's what affects me daily. Um, you, you guys were actually just here uh, for the expo uh, in Salt Lake not that long ago. No. Um, unfortunately, I had to miss it, but I will be uh, attending one in the future uh, for sure. There's uh, no way I could miss that. Um, but it's really interesting. Since I have been engaged in local politics, there is more corruption at a city council meeting and a county commission meeting than a lot of places that you would typically think that it is. And now nowadays it's just streamed live right on YouTube. Mm -hmm. And yeah. there's nobody there. So um, yeah, nobody there, but the, uh, there, there should be people there and there yeah. should be people on the dais as well as in the audience. And that's where you, Everything you do in the campus, now this, listen carefully to this, everything we do in a campus has one ultimate objective in mind, and that is to strongly influence the people who are the decision makers, and that may involve becoming a decision maker. We have to field our own candidates, not just wait around to a see at election time, let's see who's running, which one am I going to choose? <laughs> no, 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 no. It's over by that time. Mm. We have to choose the candidate. And in almost every case, it'll be someone who does not want to run for public office. If you find somebody that's anxious to run for office, look out. We want people that don't want to run for office, who don't want to make a career out of it, who want to do it because they feel it's a service to their community and to their country. Well, I'll tell you, I ran for office the first time, see, almost, uh, yeah, last year. And uh, I see why people don't do it. Um, and oh, I also yeah. have no interest in doing it ever again. <laughs> well, that's it. Who wants to run for public office? I mean, you get bombarded and everybody <laughs> wants a favor and they get mad at you. Mm -hmm. And uh, 
and your political opponents are money. trying to smear you and <laughs> yeah. make up stories about you, or maybe they find something truthful about you that's not too healthy. And first thing you know, your life is ruined, you know? No, so, I'm, I'm a libertarian. They just ignore me. <laughs> well, <laughs> anyway, this is the over, this is the thing we have to overcome and we're doing it. It's, it's the hard rule. You cannot change the system from the top down. A lot of people think, oh, if, I, if we just find a candidate to run for president, if we can just get the right man in the, in the White House, everything will go all, ever go away. Everything will be solved. But no, it's not that harder. Way <laughs> harder, yeah. If you got somebody really good in the White Office, in the White Hall there, well, they'd probably kill him. They wouldn't let him live. Or they would jam him up, not let him do anything. Well, that's right. So that's right. So therefore, they don't they don't want people to run for those offices that they don't control. Anyway, that's another story. Anyway, yeah. that's it. And so the people that want to get involved in this, please come to redpilluniversity.org and then take a look at our campuses. And you mentioned the expo, the Red Pill Expo. We, our next one is coming up pretty soon now. It will be August 12 and 13 in Des Moines, Iowa. So if you're listening and you want to see what that's all about, go to Red pillexpo.org and see a tremendous amount of speakers we have there and not only amount but quality the topics they'll be talking about you'll see it all there sign up and come and meet people and become active and we have to bond with people face to face you can't do this on the internet you can't do it you know with emails you have to bond with people and, and work at the yeah. local level and if you cannot do that of course then there is a live stream option. It's very reasonable. But uh, remember, our goal is to form organizations at the local level. And if you're ready for that, you've found home. This is where you want to be. If you're not ready for that, well, come anyway and learn what you can. And maybe you'll change your mind. Maybe you'll see that that is the way to go. Strong communities delegitimize yeah. corrupt politicians. So... Make sure and uh, become ungovernable and exit and build your own community. Yes, <laughs> we do not. We do not want government. We want a protectorate. So let's build it. I just let's want. It. I just want good neighbors. <laughs> well, that's basically the same thing. <laughs> that's true. That's true. Yeah, everyone looks out for each other. Yeah. If you wanted to hire somebody to patrol your neighborhood. And you say, okay, so take a gun and we're going to chip in some money and pay for your car and gas and, and drive around all night long, make sure that everything is looking nice here. What would you authorize them to do? Not to tell you what school to go to. No, no, I probably no. wouldn't put up with no. that. You, you just created a protectorate in your community and yeah. everybody understands that's what they're there for and nothing else. So no. that's, that's the logic. Well, on that note, I don't want to keep you too long. Uh, yeah. You have We've all got already... places to go and things to do, don't we? Yes. Yes. And, okay. Uh, I want to be able to bring you back eventually. So okay. thank you so much for coming. Uh, thank everyone for watching. Make sure and spread this. Hit that like, share, all the things that we say all the time. Get this out to as many people as possible. Uh, the big tech overlords don't want this conversation to be had, and they definitely don't want you to share it. They definitely don't want other people to hear it. Uh, and at some point, this, converse, this type of conversation might not be able to 
uh, take place uh, without bad things happening. Make sure and pick up the creature from Jekyll Island. It is a mandatory to have in any home library. And thank you once again, Mr. Griffin. Hold on for just a second as we close out. And right, very good. until next time, stay free, my friends. All right. Bye-bye.